Britain, Britain, Britain! Old people on the bowling greens, cups of tea and a slice of cake in the afternoon. Fish and chips by the seaside and eggs cooked in a variety of ways. What makes Britain stand out on the world stage? Is it our eggs and a hankering for a good old cup of tea? Probably not. Over the next 32 hours, your tour guide, Monty Lord, will take you through some of Britain's most bizarre laws. It's half past o'clock in a quiet cemetery in Kingston, Portsmouth. Some mourners are being spooked out of their wits and considering putting a call in to the local Ghostbusters team. While no specific legislation makes it illegal for you to pretend to be a ghost, whether in public or private, we know from recent reports that doing so is not such a good idea. Previously, we've examined the story of the Hammersmith Ghost, an innocent man who was shot for pretending to be a ghost. More recently, in 2014, a man from Portsmouth was arrested after loitering in Kingston Cemetery and pretending to be a ghost, waving his arms around, making spooky noises and shouting, Ooh. Nearby mourners overheard and were distressed by his outlandish behaviour. The police were called and he was promptly arrested for using threatening or abusive words or behaviour likely to cause distress under the Public Order Act 1986. For his ghoulish behaviour, he was fined £35 and was ordered to pay a victim surcharge of £20 and also court costs of a further £20. He also had three months added to his existing suspended sentence. There's quite a range of legislation that would cover such actions and provide the police with the power of arrest. He could have been arrested to prevent a further breach of the Queen's Peace, or for an offence under Section 2 of the Ecclesiastical Courts Jurisdiction Act 1860 for indecent behaviour in a burial ground. There are also common law offences of outraging public decency and public nuisance. However, these would depend on the severity of the level of distress and discomfort caused to mourners. Britain has always been a nation of animal lovers. From young children sleeping in a dog basket with a doleful-eyed puppy, to the crazy cat lady living alone with 30 cats. We love to throw a taste of morsel to a neighbour's pet, but be warned the friendly feline might not only be after your food, it may also be after your soul. In 1603, King James I came down from Scotland and took the throne upon the passing of Queen Elizabeth I. A year later, he passed the Witchcraft Act 1604, which added to its predecessor, the Witchcraft Act 1562. The Act stated that any person who shall consult, covenant with, entertain, employ, feed, or reward any evil and wicked spirits to or for any intent or purpose, their aiders, abettors, and counsellors shall be guilty of an offence. This had made it an offence to not only engage in practices of witchcraft, but also to seek the help of witches or fortune tellers. It also included the crime of helping anyone engaged in fortune telling, witchcraft or sorcery. The penalty for this offence was the same, whether you were entertaining evil and wicked spirits, merely attending a fortune telling or helping someone else to attend. Interestingly, this act also made it an offence to feed what can be considered a witch's familiar. So if you happened to be doing a community-minded service and feeding your neighbour's cats whilst they were away, and the local community felt the cat's owner was part of a witch's coven, then you've committed this offence of feeding their cats. The penalty for these offences 
including attending a fortune telling or feeding a witch's familiar, was death. Interestingly, this act makes explicit provision for anyone found guilty who happens to be a peer of the realm. Ordinary people could not try them. Instead, they could only be tried by their peers. In other words, other peers of the realm. The Friendly Horoscope. Something you might find adorning the pages of most tabloid newspapers and magazines these days. But be very careful how you use them, or you may end up in court, or worse, dead. The reign of Queen Elizabeth I was marred with public paranoia about Catholic supremacy over the Protestants. The Queen was very concerned about reports detailing Catholics employing the services of astrologers and witches to dethrone her. This in itself is bizarre, as to do so would also be in breach of a papal law passed by Pope Innocent VIII in 1484. However, such was the level of paranoia amongst the Queen's advisers that she felt it necessary to pass the 1580 Act Against Seditious Words and Rumours Uttered Against the Queen's Most Excellent Majesty. It made it an offence that if any person by casting of nativities or by calculation or by any prophesying thing, witchcraft, conjurations or other like unlawful means whatsoever seek to know how long Her Majesty shall live or continue or who shall reign as King or Queen of this realm of England after Her Highness's decease. Death was the penalty for using horoscopes to determine how long the monarch would live. In today's world, so many of us take photos on our phones and share those via Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, telepathy and osmosis. Many a young teenager has stared lovingly at a poster of a celebrity on their bedroom wall or drawn images of them in the back pages of school exercise books. There was a time when doing such a thing would have had you locked away for witchcraft. King Henry VIII passed the first piece of legislation to define witchcraft as a felony with his Act Against Conjurations and Witchcrafts and Sorcery and Enchantments, also known as the Witchcraft Act 1542. Part of the Act made it an offence for a person in the execution of the dark arts to have made or caused to be made diverse images and pictures of men, women, children, angels or devils, beasts or fowls to provoke any person to unlawful love or for any other unlawful intent or purpose. The penalty for making such visual representations of people to enchant them into unlawful love was to suffer the pains of death. They would also lose their land and anything they owned. There was a time when the king would give you a handsome reward for blowing his horn. This would often be a piece of land or a castle. It's 1815, and the Duke of Wellington has just defeated that small-statured grumpy man in France. In return for his victories, he was gifted a house, but still paid rents on it to this day. A sergeanty is a form of tenure or rents on land or property, given on the condition of providing something of benefit to the monarch. There are two main types of tenure. Grand sergeanty is where the tenant provided some honorary service in person for the monarch, in return for land or property. This could be something like carrying his royal banner or a sword. It can also be given to people who hold office in service to the monarch, for example as a butler. A unique form of grand sergeanty is called cornage. This is where an ancient tenure of land is granted, in return for which the tenant was required to blow a horn to alert the king's subjects of an impending enemy invasion. The other type of tenure is known as petty sergeanty. 
This is where the tenant holds land or property belonging to the monarch, in return for the tenant sending them annually a small implement of war. For example, a lance, uh, a bow, or even a sword. There have been some well-known cases of petty sergeancy over the recent centuries, which continue each year to this day. As grandiose as it is, you might be surprised to learn that Blenheim Palace is not a royal palace. It is, however, built on royal land. In 1704, Queen Anne gifted the royal land and money under tenure to build the palace for John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough. This was as a reward for his victories at the Battle of Blenheim. In return for this, each year, before the 13th of August, the anniversary of the Battle of Blenheim, the Duke of Marlborough must send a representative to Windsor Castle to present the Sovereign with the Blenheim Standard. A new standard is made each year for this purpose, which continues to this day. The Duke of Marlborough isn't the only one who has to pay for his rent in this elaborate way. So too does the Duke of Wellington, in what is referred to as the Waterloo Ceremony. Each year, on the 18th of June, the Duke must pay his rent to the monarch, on the stately home of Stratfield Say House, Hampshire. This date is the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. On the 18th of June, 1815, Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, led the British army into battle at Waterloo. It was a decisive victory. Napoleon was defeated once and for all. The victorious Duke of Wellington returned home. In recognition of his services, his Stratfield Say House was gifted to him. This has remained the family home ever since. Like the Duke of Marlborough, the current Duke of Wellington travels to Windsor Castle each year to pay the rent on Stratfield Say House. It is not a financial rent, instead he presents the monarch with a French tricolour, made of fine silk and embroidered with gold thread. A new flag is made each year just for this purpose. In an elaborate ceremony, the Duke of Wellington kneels before his sovereign and presents her with a tricolour. The sovereign accepts this rent, and the flag is handed to the castle's superintendent. He duly removes it to the guard chamber, draping it over a marble bust of the first Duke of Wellington. Something tells you the bailiffs wouldn't be dispatched should either Duke fail to discharge their annual rent obligations. Sir Charles Mill held Berry House, New Forest in Hampshire, under tenure from 1789. In return, he had to provide King George III with a brace of milk-white greyhounds each time the King visited the New Forest. It is known that Sir Charles kept a litter of greyhounds in anticipation of the King's visit. North of the border in Scotland, the Duke of Athol held their estate at Blair Athol, providing they gift the monarch a single white rose during each castle visit. In 1844, Queen Victoria extended this by granting the Duke the right to raise his own private army, the Athol Highlanders. This infantry regiment is the only private army in Europe and acts as a personal bodyguard to the Duke. Over to the Isles of Scilly, just off the Cornish coast, where the rent payers of the Wildlife Trust was making an annual gift to Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales. The gift is one daffodil. It's 12.30 after the noon on a lazy Sunday and James Smithers is stood in a local churchyard with his family and other parishioners, practicing their archery skills as the law requires. Military strategists throughout history continue to recognize the importance of the longbow on the battlefield. Any long-range weapon is considered strategically superior to close-range battle or hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Fortunately, archery was hugely popular in England as a sport and hunting for meat, like rabbits and other small game. Provided the archers didn't stray into the royal forest and shoot any of the king's deer or boar, 
it could also be quite a lucrative pursuit, fetching up to six pence a day. Highly skilled archers could be called up for military service in large campaigns, perhaps against our old adversary, the French. They could also be sought out to join the Posse Comitatus, mobilised by the local sheriff to suppress lawlessness in the county. A myth about an unrepealed medieval law states that all English males over 14 must carry out two hours of longbow practice each week, supervised by the local clergy. Sadly, this is just a myth, but has strong foundations in actual laws as existed. In 1252, King Henry III passed the Assize of Arms, requiring all males between the ages of 15 to 60 to equip themselves with suitable weapons, including bows and arrows. In medieval times, families would gather at their local parish church and practice at the butts. This became a popular social activity across most English and Welsh villages, with men testing their bow skills at weekly parish competitions. These expert archery skills became essential during the Hundred Years' War with the French from 1337 to 1453. English victories on the battlefield were often credited to our use of the longbow rather than the crossbow. At the time, the crossbow was the preferred choice by most countries. The English longbow became one of the most important inventions, with proven military effectiveness. This beckoned the requirement to train as many highly skilled longbow archers as possible for military campaigns. It changed the face of Europe forever, with our victories at Agincourt, Cressy and Poitiers being attributed to the expertise of the English archers and the longbow. In 1363, the first of a series of ordinances and statutes were passed by King Edward III. These required that all Englishmen spend their Sunday and holidays, not in the pointless amusements such as football, bowls, tennis and dice, but in shooting at the butts. This shows the importance placed on the longbow and consistent archery practice at the time. It sought to ensure as many Englishmen as possible would become experts with the bow and arrow. The punishment for refusing to practice with the bow and arrow was imprisonment. In 1515, King Henry VIII passed his Acts for Maintenance of Archery to maintain archery as the predominant sport in England. His Unlawful Games Act 1541 went further in barring what the king felt were unlawful games, which is anything that was causing the decay of archery skills across the land. He declared that all men under 60 shall have bows and arrows for shooting and boys between 7 and 16 shall have a bow and two shafts. Boys aged 17 are required to keep a bow and four arrows. The law required that a bow be kept continually in the house and that fathers and governors of children should teach them to shoot. It even stipulated what wood should be used to make the common bows. It ordered the butts be erected in all townships and that inhabitants should practice shooting at them during holidays. Local magistrates were given powers to enter houses to look for anyone playing unlawful games. Anyone found playing unlawful games could be bound over or imprisoned. It also required mayors and sheriffs at least monthly to check all places they suspect unlawful games may be played. The Gaming Act 1845 started to repeal its requirements. It was later fully repealed with the passing of the Betting and Gaming Act 1960. You may be curious to hear that King Henry I, who reigned from 1100 to 1135, passed a law absolving any archer who accidentally killed or injured a passerby whilst practicing their archery skills. This was reinforced in 1537 when King Henry VIII granted a royal charter to an archer's group 
called the Guild and Fraternity of St. George. It was established for the better defence of the realm by the maintenance of the science and feat of shooting. The king also provided a royal pardon against any charge of murder should members of this group accidentally kill anyone whilst practising, provided they first shout the warning cry, FAST. In a typically British story on the 11th of June 2010, the Reverend Mary Edwards of the village of Collingbourne Dukis in Wiltshire summoned all parish members to the recreation ground for archery practice. This, of course, was a tongue-in-cheek request to her parishioners. She genuinely believed the ancient archery laws had not been repealed. There were no punishments for those who failed to attend. Those who did comply with the law were rewarded with a barbecue and live music. Here are some further interesting facts about the longbow. A skilled longbowman could release between 10 to 12 arrows per minute. The longbow could pierce the armour of a knight at ranges of more than 250 yards, which converts to 229 metres. Arrows called longbodkins were used for piercing male armour. Arrows called shortbodkins were used for piercing plate armour. Arrows called swallowtails were used to bring down horses. And the Welsh were the first people in Britain to have and use longbows. And so, we've reached the end of another episode! It's rather good, don't you think? I'm off to read my horoscope now. I was born under a palm tree in the month of Jupiter. Until next time, toodle poop! Thank you for listening to Bizarre Laws of the UK podcast. If you've loved this episode, then please take a screenshot on your phone and post it to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you like to post. Be sure to tag me and let me know why you like this episode and what you'd like to hear more about in the future. That'll help me to know what to create for you.